Thanks for joining us for the Covenant Living Broadcast with Pastor John Butler of Covenant Life Church, located at 130 Atlantic Avenue in Bremen, Georgia. On today's broadcast, Pastor John will speak from the subject of How Do I Love Thee? This is part number five, and it is the concluding part of the series entitled Power of Love. And now, here's today's message. 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14. We're going to read the last verse of 1 Corinthians 12 and the first verse of 1 Corinthians 14. In the middle of those two verses is 1 Corinthians 13, what, we, what is commonly referred to as the love chapter, where the love, uh, the, the God's kind of love is described. All right, so I want to read the last half of the last verse in, verse in chapter 12, the first half of the first verse in chapter 14, okay? So verse 31, the last half, Paul says, he's been talking about spiritual gifts, and he says, but now let me show you a way of life that is best of all, a way of life that is best of all. And we've been in this study long enough that I hope you know what way of life it is he's talking about. Starts with L, four letter word, ends with of. Good, good. All right. Wanted everybody to participate today. Love. Love is the way of life. Then we have chapter 13, verse 14, or ver, chapter 14, verse 1. He says, let love be your highest goal. Let love be your highest goal. Father, in the name of Jesus today, I pray that you'd help us to hear and do your word. Lord, would you illuminate our hearts? Would you, would you help us to lower the walls of defense that sometimes we put up before we hear the word? God, help us to be... Um, soft towards the word, open, receptive to hear what you have to say to us today. God, I pray that, that chapter 12 and verse 31 come to pass in our lives, that we will live a lifestyle of love that's best of, of all the lifestyles that we can live. Help us to live that one. And God, I pray that we would keep love as our highest goal. Speak to us today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, today we are going to wrap up the Power of Love series. And I don't know about you, but as for me and my house, as Valerie and I have been discussing this, this has been one of the most far-reaching and maybe one of the most challenging series that I, that, that I may have ever preached. Um, but I'm not sure there's anything more important to, to developing uh, and growing in our relationship with Jesus Christ than the subject of love. Um, and I'm still convinced that what we said in the very first message is still true, that love is the most powerful force on the face of the earth. Love is the most powerful force on the face of the earth. According to the scripture that we just read, love is a way of life. It cuts, it's a lifestyle that cuts across everything that we do. It affects every relationship that we have, every decision that we make. And, and it should be our highest goal. It was the driving force behind everything that Jesus did or said while he was on the earth. And if we're going to be disciples of Jesus Christ, then we are going to have to learn to do the same thing for the same reason. We're going to have to learn to love 
As a matter of fact, it is our capacity to love that Jesus says, and our capacity to love each other, that Jesus says will let the world know that we're his followers. How I love you and how you love me is what's going to show people whether we're the real deal or not. And while we've spent lots of time in this series uh, talking about the power of love and the importance of love and the possibilities of love, what we have not talked about yet is how. How. So today's message, echoing back to Shakespeare, is how do I love thee? How do I love thee? So we're going to try to answer really two important questions. First of all, what does it really mean to love Jesus? When he says that we need to live a lifestyle of love, when he says we need to love him, what does that really mean? And secondly, if we find ourselves lacking in love as the Ephesian church did, and we'll read that passage again in just a, in just a few minutes, but if we find ourselves coming up a little short in loving Jesus the way we used to, then what steps can we take to fall in love with Jesus again? How do we make our relationship better? So first of all, what does it mean to love Jesus? What, what is he wanting from us when he says that? And we're going to read two passages of scripture and, and, and I'll show you why in just a second. Matthew 22 and Deuteronomy 6. Matthew 22 and Deuteronomy 6. Here's a, a teacher, I mean, a, 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 a Sadducee, I believe, is one of the scribes of the, of the time, coming up to Jesus, trying to trick him. They ask him this question, teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, I believe it was instant. He didn't have to think about it. He said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And then he said, a second one is equally important. You have to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And then he, then he put uh, the, the weight of context and importance around it. The entire law and all the demands of the prophet are based on these two commandments. And then Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is, this is what it says. Listen, O Israel, or, or the King James may, will say, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Or your King James will say, the Lord is one God. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. So Jesus in the Matthew passage is actually quoting the Deuteronomy passage. And when you put them together, because you'll notice that there's a different word in the Deuteronomy passage than there is in the Matthew passage. When you put them together and you understand the entire concept, what Jesus is saying is that to love God properly, what he wants from us is to love him with all of our hearts, all of our souls, all of our minds, and all of our strength. That includes, think about it, it includes everything about a person, every aspect of a person's life. When you love with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, that's everything. Those are your thoughts, it's your understanding, it's your emotions, it's your decision-making process, it's your desires, it's your feelings, it's your, your, even your spirit. So when he says, love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, that means the good, the bad, and the ugly. That means the hidden stuff that you haven't told anybody about. That, that means the shame and the regret. But it also means the talents and the gifts, as well as the character flaws and the weaknesses that you have. You give every part of yourself to God, and you allow him to permeate your entire life. 
That's what it means to love him in that way. So, so you might say, well, God, here are my strengths. Use my strengths for your glory. Or you might say, God, here are my hurts. Lord, heal me and, and, and make these hurts whole so that I can help other people heal. Or you say, God, here are my opportunities. Here are the resources that I have. Use anything that I have and anything that I am to advance your kingdom. You might say, God, here are my chains. Deliver me that I can be in right relationship with you and be a testimony to others that you're my deliverer. God, here are my secrets. So shine the light of your truth in the darkness of my secrets into every corner of my life. Lord, here are my dreams. Fulfill them for your glory. Change them for your glory. Do whatever you want to, but not my will be done, but your will be done. That's how you love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's everything. You love him with everything. Now, the word in Deuteronomy that's different than the one in Matthew is the word strength or might. He says you have to love him with all of your strength. That, that means that you pursue him passionately. This is not a casual kind of love. It, it's almost, the word almost is, is aggressive. You pursue God passionately, almost aggressively. It, it means that, that you should love him with all of your might, everything that's in you. So that's not a passive kind of love. It, it's a love that should consume you. It's a love that should drive you. Your love for God should motivate you. It should change your priorities. Your love should cause you to pursue God like a thirsty man wants water. That's how much we should go after God. And so when he's, when he's talking to the, to the church in, in Revelation, that's what he's looking for from them. Let me show it to you in Psalm 42 in verse 1. He says, as a deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. Listen, when you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, you should be looking not for the blessing of God, not for the protection of God, not even for the favor of God. You should just be looking for God. You're just going after God. A person who loves God is not so much seeking his hand as seeking his heart. It's not the stuff that comes along with God. It's God. So how do I love thee, Lord? Passionately, completely, with your whole life. That's how you love God. Following Jesus, no turning back, as the old song used to say. You know, no, nothing held back. I'm all in. Everything I've got is for the Lord. And so now that we know how we're supposed to love him in the context of, of what Jesus means, what he expects when he says to love, let's go back to Revelation where Jesus told them they had lost their love for him and see what we can do about it. Revelation chapter two, verses four through five. There's a process here and I want you to see it today. So Jesus said, hey, I know your works in the earlier verses. I know your works. You're doing a lot of good stuff. He listed those things. And then he said, but I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Notice it didn't say you don't love me, but you don't love me by comparison more than you did. 
So look how far you've fallen. Look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. You see the process there? Look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I'll come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. In other words, I'll shut your church down. If you don't get the love thing right, I'll shut your church down. So he gave the Ephesians a three-step process to remedy their love problem in their church. And we're going to spend the bulk of our time on the last step. But if you don't do steps one and step two, you, you can't get to step three. Okay, so here's the, here's the first thing. You have to reflect. You have to reflect. Jesus said, look how far you've fallen. Look. You, you, you have to reflect on your love for Jesus. You have to think about it. And you have to look deeper than the surface. He didn't say you need to reflect on your actions. He said you have to look below the surface of your actions and look at the love that you have for me. Because you don't see until you look. Some things you don't see until you look. And the natural tendency in any relationship, whether it's marriage, a friendship, a business partnership, whatever it is, the natural tendency over time is to assume that everything is fine. Right? Assume everything is fine. Right? You've talked to Bubba, who got married in 1974. And he said, well, I told her I loved her then. If anything changes, I'll let her know. You, you can't do that, man. You can't do that. You, you have to look every once in a while you, if, because you're not going to see until you look and you can't assume everything's okay. Our relationship with God is too important for us to assume everything is okay because the, the, the next, if you don't look about your faith, if you don't look about your love for Jesus, the next time you look might be when you're standing face to face in front of the judgment. And that is not the time to be finding out. I want to know where I stand with God before I face him. And so you have to look. You have to take time to reflect. Look at your love for Jesus compared to what he expects. Or do you love him with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength? Are you passionately pursuing God? Do you, see, do you seek to know him better and better, know him more and more, love him more and more every day? Are you continually opening the doors of yourself to him, inviting him in? Or are you looking for ways to keep him out of certain areas of your life? We have to reflect. He wants you to love him with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. Nothing held back, nothing hidden. So you have to take time to reflect on that today. And the Holy Spirit will help you. He will help you. As a matter of fact, he's, he's a specialist at helping you search your heart and find out where you stand with him. So you have to reflect. The second thing that you have to do is repent. You have to repent. As you, uh, as you reflect or after you reflect, I am assuming that we will all find things in our lives that we need to repent for. You say, well, John, don't, don't judge me. Uh, listen, I ain't judging you. I'm, I have a hard enough time with me. 
I'm just saying I know enough folks to know all of us have something in our lives that's coming between us and God. So we, we're going to need to repent, but understand what that means. Repentance means to repent means to rethink. It means to rethink. It's not just saying you're sorry and seeking forgiveness. That's part of it. But true repentance is more about how you plan to avoid making the same mistake moving forward. So if, if your repentance doesn't involve the past and the present and the future, then, then you're, you're, you're not really repenting. You may be guilty and you're trying to, uh, to, to relieve yourself of that guilt, but repentance always looks into the future. And so it, it takes some thought. It takes some thought. So when you reflect, you're going to take the results of your investigation into yourself, and then you're going to change how you think about some area or about some aspect of your relationship with Jesus. So it might be, it might be, Father, I repent. I repent that I've been trying to hide my addiction to pornography or whatever it is, right? I love you. I want this gone out of my life. I don't want this in my life anymore because it's damaging my relationship with you. It's damaging my relationship with other people. So God, help me. Help me to confess to my spouse. God, help me to put tracking software on all my electronic devices. God, help me to find the right accountability partner with whom I can be completely honest because I don't want this to return in my life. Do you see the difference there? That's a different kind of prayer than, oh, God, I'm sorry. My bad. I shouldn't have been doing that. That's a different thing. Or it might be, Father, I repent that I've allowed my, my love for Jesus to take a back seat to all the other stuff that I have to do in my life or in my day. I haven't prioritized prayer like I should. I haven't prioritized my personal worship. I haven't prioritized my personal devotion time. So God, I'm sorry. Help me to pray for at least five minutes every morning or, or 15 or 30, whatever that is for you. It's not about the number it's about the priority. You see the difference? Repentance is not just about relieving yourself of the guilt and the shame. It's about finding a plan forward, rethinking your life, rethinking your priorities. So after you reflect, then you repent, and then this last step is the most important step. And I want to warn you, you're going to hear me going through this list, and you're going to think, that's the dumbest thing I have ever heard. I'm already doing all that stuff. But it's not about the doing. It's not just about the what. It's the why. Okay? So don't dismiss what I'm about to say thinking you've got it covered. Reflect first. Reflect. All right, so, here's, so what he says, after you, repent, after you reflect and after you repent, you have to redo your first works. Redo your first works. Jesus said, turn back to me and do the works you did at first. That means do what you did when you first surrendered yourself to Jesus. So what things would that be? What, what is it that you did? What do new believers do when they first surrender themselves to Jesus? And because we're talking about love, let me ask it this way. What do people do when they fall in love? How do people act when, they're first, when they first fall in love? Well, they spend time together, right? You want to spend every waking moment together. They're generous with each other. They, they're thoughtful and attentive when they're together. They pay attention to each other. 
They, they're mindful of each other when they're, even, when they're not together, always thinking of each other. Everything's done out of love. Everything is done. They, they put forth extra effort in everything they do. No request, no desire is too much. That, what, what is it? Ain't no mountain high enough. Right? All that stuff. Y'all hum to yourself while, while I'm preaching. You know, uh, there's nothing that's too much to ask when you're in love. When a man loves a woman. Don't make me say Michael Bolton up in here today. All right? So you, it, it just doesn't matter when you're in love. Right? They, you live to please each other. You live to serve each other. You, you, you live to be with each other. Now I'm thinking... When I'm at, anyway, all right. So let's look at the, let's look at the scriptures because Michael Bolton ain't in the scriptures, but let's look at the scriptures. And, and, and when you do, you find something that describes the exact kind of response that happens when two people love each other. And we'll show it to you in Acts chapter two, verses 41 through 47. Those who believed what Peter uh, said in his preaching, he gave the invitation. Those who believed were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. Pretty stinking good message. All the believers, look at what the believers did now. They all devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teaching, fellowship, sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. What else happened? A deep sense of awe came over all of them, and the apostles performed many miracles, many miraculous signs and wonders. All the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and their possessions, and they shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of the people, of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. So what do people do when they first get saved? What are the first works that Jesus was talking about? Here's the first thing, they were devoted to the word. They were devoted to the word. You, you know how people young in love try to learn everything they can about each other, right? You got this new guy that kind of catches your eye and you start talking to everybody who you think knows him because you want to know more about him, see if he's a good guy, right? That's what these people did. They, as soon as they met Jesus, they threw themselves into finding out, learning everything they could about Jesus, why? Because they, they, or how did they do that? Because they, they, they went to the apostles' teaching. They went to where the apostles were, listened to them teach and preach. They listened to everything they said because they wanted to know everything they could possibly know about Jesus. They went to church. They went to church. That sounds ridiculously easy. But listen, it's not about checking off the box. It's not about saying, yep, I went to church. They went to church because they loved Jesus. They went to church because they wanted to hear about Jesus. They wanted to learn about Jesus. They wanted to meet him. They wanted to spend as much time as they could with him. So here's the obvious question. Why do we come to church? Why are we coming to church? Is it obligation? Is it a habit? Is it our routine? Well, if it's Sunday, we're just going to get up and go to church because we always get up and go to church before we go to Cracker Barrel. Right? Or, or is it social expectation? We're good Southern people, so we just we have to go to church because Granny went to church and Mama went to church. 
Why do we go to church? Is it just to find nice people? Is it to eat Tima's food? I mean, that's a good reason to come to church. But it ain't the best reason to come to church. And here's, here's the point. The Ephesians were still coming to church. They were still doing good stuff. Jesus said, I got a problem with you. <laughs> you're not, your love for me is growing cold. You're still coming to church, but your love is growing cold. People who love Jesus go to the house of the Lord to learn about him, to learn about his word. You say, well, John, I get it, man, but I just don't get anything out of it when I come. Well, what are you putting into it when you come? Because the output is directly related to the input. And, and then why do you go to church in the first place? Why are you coming? If you're, if you're coming to church to learn about him, to love him, then going to church is never a waste of time. But I want you to notice that they said they, they were devoted to it. They devoted themselves to it. They didn't just go to church whenever it fit the schedule. They didn't just go to whenever it was convenient. They were devoted to it. They made it a priority in their lives. Because, listen, not because their pastor is trying to make them feel bad. They prioritized going to the house of God because of their love for Jesus. Their love for Jesus consumed them. So they went to the house of the Lord, not just because they didn't have anything better to do. They honestly didn't have anything better in their lives than going and being with Jesus in his house, learning about him. And listen, being devoted to the word is not just about going to church. We have resources and opportunities available to us that the, the, the early disciples could never have even imagined we have the completed, written word of God at our fingertips in multiple translations with thousands of pages, millions of pages of commentary, dictionaries, concordances, all for free and all pretty much available instantly. But how devoted are we to learning it? We can read and study anytime, anywhere. You can listen to good preachers anytime, anywhere. But most people who attend church service this morning will not open a Bible again until the next time they attend church service or on your phone or wherever it is. That's not how you act when you're in love. If we're, if we're going to be in love with Jesus, we've got to come to his house. We've got to devote ourselves to being in his word. Because unlike some other people, the more we know him, the more we learn about him, the more in love we are with him. So what are the first works that help you fall in love with Jesus? You're devoted to the word. The second thing is, is fellowship. Fellowship. People in love don't just want to know stuff about each other. They want to spend every possible moment together. They go places together. They do things together. And for the believers, it wasn't enough for them just to go to church. The early believers also spent time interacting with other believers and learning how to live out their faith. We would call it small groups. Or we would call it outreach opportunities or ministry opportunities. And see, here's the weird thing. Jesus called us both to be disciples and to make disciples, right? It's both. 
So you might say, well, you know, I'm, I'm good. I, my, my relationship with Jesus is good. Yeah, but there's somebody else who needs what you have. So we can't, it's not just about us being disciples. We also have to disciple others. See, there's no such thing as discipleship without fellowship. You can't learn to be a disciple of Jesus until you spend time hanging out with other disciples of Jesus. There's no solo version of Christianity. You can't like get the individual package. That's not a thing. It's a group deal every time. They spent time hearing the apostles' teaching, and then they got together, usually over meals, most of the time fried chicken, and they talked about what they just learned, and they figured out how to change their lifestyles in order to line up with, what they, with their newfound love for Jesus. And according to the, to the structure of the sentence that we just read, they, it was one of the things they devoted themselves to. They didn't just devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the apostles' teaching, they also devoted themselves to fellowship. They made time for it because it was important. You know, you know why I like to hang out with Robbie? I hang out with Robbie as much as I can. Do you know why I hang out I like to hang out with Robbie? Because he always pays when we go to London. I'm, I'm just kidding. No. I hang out with Robbie because seeing the way Robbie loves Jesus makes me want to love Jesus more. Right? When you hang out with Jesus people, it affects you. So, so here's what you do. You find some people who love Jesus more than you love Jesus. You find some people who love Jesus at a level that you want to love Jesus. You find people who know Jesus at a level that you want to know Jesus. And then you spend time with them as much as you can. And you intentionally share your walk with them and with each other. You intentionally share your challenges with each other, your victories with each other. You do life together with people who love Jesus as much or more than you do. So we have a men's, that's why we have a men's group and a women's group and a couple's group and student groups and, and kids groups. All, everybody has a group. Why? We have groups of people who serve together in outreaches. We have people who serve together in ministry. So if you want to know where to start, you're like, yeah, I got to have one of those. You want to know where to start, then go to the next steps area in the lobby. Jamie and Stephanie will be happy to give you information about small groups, to give you information about serving in ministries, about outreach opportunities, about figuring out maybe where your best place is, your best fit is. We got processes in place to do that. All we need from you is the go ahead and we'll help you because it's important. It's what people in love do. So what's the, what, what are the first works that will help us fall in love with Jesus? Being devoted to the apostles' teaching, being devoted to fellowship, being devoted to prayer, to prayer. The passage said they were devoted to prayer. So that means it wasn't a last resort. It wasn't a spiritual 911 call. It was a constant conversation between them and the lover of their souls. You see, people who are in love... They, they'll text each other all through the day, right? They, they might drop by to see each other where they work or, or swing by the house or whatever. They might make a quick call just to, just to say, I love you, like Stevie Wonder did. I got to listen to some music this afternoon, man. When I, when I, right after I graduated high school, I got a job at Winn-Dixie in Carrollton. And um, 
I was on the stock crew, so I'd work through the night. And, and Valerie would come by and leave me notes on my car. Because ain't nobody ever thought of a cell phone or a text message or nothing. So she'd, she'd leave me a note under my windshield wiper on my 1978 Gremlin or my 79 Pinto, whichever one it was I was driving at the time. Why? Because people who are in love communicate. They communicate about everything. Prayer is communication. Prayer is communication. So if you're in love with Jesus, you're going to talk to him all throughout the day. Listen, you do not have to set aside time to fall to your knees and clasp your hands and bow your heads. You can talk to Jesus anytime, anywhere, all the time, everywhere, instantly. It ain't got to be the King's English. It ain't got to follow a formula. You don't have to do any of that stuff. You talk to him like somebody, anybody else you love, you talk to them throughout the day about everything. So something good happens, you celebrate the good stuff. You're like, Lord, thank you for that victory. I didn't see that coming. Thank you. For, thank you for this blessing. Sometimes I'm just like, God, thank, look at this day. Thank you for this day. What in the world? Were, why did you give us such a beautiful place to live? You just say thank you. you. You lean on him through the difficult times because guess what? They don't always schedule an appointment, do they? Hard times just show up in the middle of the day and everything's going fine. So there's times that you're just going to have to say, oh, God, I don't know if I can do this. God, I need you. I can't do this on my own. And he hears that and he shows up. You, you're just living your day and you'll just ask his advice about decisions. Because when we talked about this Wednesday night, there's good ways to make decisions. But you know what? Sometimes you ain't got three days to fast and pray. Sometimes you need something right now. Somebody just says, you choose, what are you going to do? So there's times that you have to say, God, what am I, what am I supposed to do? Guide me through your spirit right now. I need a choice. I need to make a decision right now. And I don't want to mess this up. So God, help me discern your will. Give me your peace right now. Give me your peace to know which direction to go. Or if you do have some time, one of my frequent prayers is, God, open a door that no man can close if you want me to walk through it. Open that door. Or, Lord, this, is, this sounds good to me. This makes sense to me. But if this is not your will, close a door that no man can open. Lord, close this door and put such a lock on it that I can't figure out how to get my, wiggle my way in. Y'all ever try to push through a locked door before? So we've got to learn to do that. That's part of the prayer process. And that's part of how when you're in love, that's what people do. They communicate. So if, if we've been approaching prayer time as a business transaction, trying to get God to do stuff for us, or if we've been approaching it as a spiritual obligation, it's no wonder, it's no wonder our love grows cold. Prayer should be personal. It should be private conversations that go on throughout the day like you do with anybody else you love. What else do people do when they're in love? What else do people do when they first surrender themselves to Jesus? Praise and worship. Verse 46 says they worship the Lord. Verse 47 says they praise God. Praise and worship is a part of every passionate believer's life. I don't know someone who is passionate about Jesus who is not also a praiser and a worshiper. 
Now, I didn't say a singer. I know lots of people who love Jesus that should not sing in public, <laughs> at least not very loud. Praise and worship is not just a part of the service. Praise and worship is a lifestyle of gratitude and honor for the Lord. It's a matter of recognizing his attributes, recognizing his activities. And, and the only appropriate response to the blessings of God in our lives is just gratitude. We should just take every opportunity to just say, thank you, Jesus. You are great. You are awesome. Like we did this morning, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. God, you've got this. You're everything that I need. See, if you think of praise and worship only as a response to a song, then you can be influenced by the style, by the singer, by the musician, by the volume, by the quality, by the beats per minute, by the lyric, and a and, and hundred other aspects of music, none of which have anything to do with praise and worship. But when you look at when you look at it as an opportunity to say, thank you, Jesus, then none of that stuff matters anymore. He says, well, that's not my song. Who cares? It's a chance to say, thank you, Jesus. That's not, I don't like that song. I don't like that musician. I don't like that. Who cares? It's a chance to say, thank you, Jesus. So when, when, when you get your eyes turned on Jesus, the things of earth grow strangely dim, don't they? And one of the greatest examples of, of, I think, of praise and worship in the scripture is a woman named Mary. And there are two different accounts that I want you to see, uh, one in Luke and one in John. But, but I want you to see it because they're, they're different takes on this same concept of praising and worshiping. First of all, Luke chapter 10 Luke chapter 10, verse 38 says, Jesus, the other disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem. They came to a certain village. We know that village to be Bethany. They came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed Jesus into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he taught. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here? Y'all have a sister like that? <clears throat> Your sister just sits here while I do all the work. Tell her to come help me. But the Lord said to her, my dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There's only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it. And it's not going to be taken away from her. Worship is about love. And the best expression to lo of love, according to Jesus, is not in the stuff that you do. It's in taking the time to quiet yourself before him, listen to him, and sit at his feet. That's how you praise and worship. That's how you love on Jesus. Martha would run around everywhere. Doing, doing stuff, stuff we would call ministry. And there's a place and a time for that. And she was doing it for Jesus. She was literally making preparations for Jesus. But in terms of impact on the relationship, Jesus said, listen, there's no substitute 
There's no substitute for time well spent at my feet. Here's a second instance of praise and worship from Mary. And I want to show it to you in John chapter 12. Six days before the Passover uh, celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany. That's where they lived. The home of Lazarus, because it was Mary and Martha and Lazarus, the man that he had raised from the dead. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served, of course, because that's what Martha does. Lazarus was among those who ate because he was a bit of a celebrity now, having been dead like a few weeks ago and now not. So everybody's wanting to see Lazarus. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard. She anointed Jesus' feet with it, not his head, anointed his feet with it, wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of what she offered. (laughs) This was personal. Mary didn't look around to see if anybody else was doing it. She said, I have a chance. Jesus is in my house. Jesus is in the house. I'm going to bless him. Jesus is in the house. I'm going to thank him. Jesus is in the house. I'm going to bless him. It was personal for her. It was extravagant. It was extravagant. It was was passionate. This was not a run-of-the-mill routine, kind of lift your right hand for 30 seconds and then switch hands because you're getting tired. This was all-in passion. This was intimate. This was about her and Jesus. She didn't care nothing about what Martha was doing. Didn't care nothing about how cool Lazarus was all of a sudden. Nothing about that. When Jesus is in the house, you take the time to worship him and to love him and to praise him. And then Jesus said about that, he, and for about verse 6, he said, listen, leave this woman alone. Leave this woman alone because what she did was to, was to prepare my body for burial. Praise and worship, when it's done right, in spirit and in truth, will always benefit the body of Christ. And it will, the fragrance of your sacrifice will always fill the room where you are. Listen, do you understand the difference That we might have been doing the right things, but maybe doing them for the wrong reasons or doing them without really thinking about the reasons. These are the things that we have to do to deepen the love we have for Jesus. It's about our relationship with him. It's about the why, not the what. And there's one last area of things that they did. One last area is generosity and benevolence. Generosity and benevolence. When people who love each other give to each other. People who love each other give to each other. No matter what the budget is, you figure out ways to bless each other. It might be a candy bar. I, I, I brought Valerie one of those new orange vanilla Coke things last night. Don't y'all turn your nose up. That junk was good. It was good. I took it to her. I didn't, go, I didn't, have, I didn't have to take out a loan to, to buy it. Like two for three dollars. I got her one because I love her. Right? People who love each other give to each other. They don't hold stuff back. The scripture 
The scripture said that after they got saved, they created this culture of giving, this culture of generosity and benevolence, where if you need it and I've got it, then it's yours. They gave, they gave generously and they gave to those in need as well. You say, well, John, that's okay. But how does that help us love Jesus? What does me giving to that person have to do with, with loving Jesus? Well, again, it's a matter of understanding, not just the what, but the why. Look at Matthew 25. Look at what Jesus said about it. Jesus said, I was hungry. You fed me. I was thirsty. You gave me a drink. I was a stranger. You let me live with you. I was naked. You gave me clothes. I was sick. You cared for me. I was in prison. You visited me. And when they were confused by that, Jesus cleared it up in verse 40. He said, I tell you the truth. When you did it to the least, one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. The more you see giving as an obligation, the less you're less likely you are to do it. Or if you actually do get around to doing it, you're likely to do only what's necessary. But the more you see it as an opportunity to love Jesus, like Mary did, then the more beneficial it becomes for your relationship. Would you stand with me today? We pray that you have been blessed and inspired by today's Covenant Living broadcast. To find out more information about our ministry, just visit our website at www.covenantlifewestga.org. You can find this video there on our homepage. Just click the YouTube button and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel. And give us a call at 770-537-3747. That's 770-537-3747. At Covenant Life, our mission is to go and make disciples by being real, relational, and reaching. Be sure to join us next week for more Covenant Living with Pastor John Butler.